Welcome to the Healthcare IT Today interview series. We feel lucky to be able to talk to so many smart, passionate, and knowledgeable people in healthcare. Now, we're taking our favorite interviews and sharing them with you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy perspectives on the world of health IT. Hello, everyone. I'm John Lin, the founder and chief editor at Healthcare IT Today. We're excited to bring you a, a really interesting, diverse uh, panel talking about healthcare interoperability, which you know, has been a discussion for a long, long time. But the nice thing is COVID-19 has shined a light on it in a really unique way. So I thought it would be a, a great time to bring a, a diverse group of perspectives on healthcare interoperability and talk about what's happening and also, you know, what's happening with customers that they're working with, et cetera. So let's go around, uh, around the horn, if you will, and uh, each of you can introduce yourselves and where you're from. Uh, Dr. Hobson, you want to start? Sure. Thank you. My name is Chris Hobson. I'm the Chief Medical Officer at Orion Health. Uh, we've been involved in interoperability for kind of 25 years. Um, in the US today, we're mostly involved in health information exchange. Uh, and my interest is really on the clinical and population health uh, components. Excellent. Pleased to be here. Thanks for, thanks for coming. Uh, Drew, you want to go next? Sure. I'm Drew Ivan, the Chief Product and Strategy Officer for Lineate. Uh, we're an interoperability company, and uh, we, we focus on solving the interoperability problem with our products, Rhapsody and CorePoint integration engines. Excellent. Matthew, you want to go next? Sure. Uh, I'm uh, President and CEO of LifeImage. We obviously focus on interoperability too, but our core roots are in some of the most difficult to uh, access data, unstructured data, and imaging, and today we're providing interoperability, data access, data management governance activities for about 10,000 facilities in the U.S. and another 70,000 or so. Right, and I think Matthew's starting to fight. Uh, who's the? What's the hardest thing to be interoperable? No, uh, maybe that's a discussion we'll get into. Uh, <laughs> we we like those discussions. All right, uh, Dr. Rizik, you want to finish us up? Uh, yes, uh, Imad Rizik, um, CEO of Cotivity Healthcare. Uh, we ha we are an analytics company, a SaaS-based analytics company, and we have about uh, 140 to 150 million single records that we that we look at both clinically and financially, and we really use them around uh, payment accuracy, risk adjustment, and risk stratification and quality outcomes, mostly for payers and providers, but we do not work with pharma, pharma companies. Right. Well, and I, I thought there was an important part to add, uh, Dr. Rizik, because uh, it's one thing to be interoperable, but if you have the data, what do you do with it? So hopefully we can have some of that discussion as well. Um, let's kick it off and just talk about you know, of course, the elephant in the room, COVID-19. How would the, you know, it have been different in the U.S. had we had a fully interoperable healthcare system. Uh, Dr. Hobson, you want to start and maybe Matthew can go next? Sure. I mean, I think we have to be realistic that COVID-19 came out of nowhere. We had no idea about this disease. As a physician, it was kind of exciting in a way to come across a disease that was so important for which I had almost knew almost nothing about it. Um, but if we'd had a fully interoperable health system, if we'd had some key key ingredients, which, you know, unique identification of the patient, integration of the public health and the COVID-19 test data, uh, some of those things, then we would have had 
we, you know, we, we lost a lot of time where we didn't really have any view as to what was going on. So if we'd had those key elements and plus the ability to kind of graphically or, or display it and filter it, so as well as having the data, but being able to use it for things, I think we would have been able to get on top of things faster and who knows, um, I doubt, I mean, the, the kind of catastrophic things that happened in New York might have been, you know, too much to get on top of, but past that, I think maybe we would have been on top of it much more, been able to do better contact tracing and so on. That's great. Matthew, anything you add? Sure. I mean, uh, just this morning, I live in a small town in Massachusetts, and we had 11 new cases diagnosed yesterday in a town that has had one, right, uh, to date, uh, amazingly. But having said that, right, uh, having this conversation uh, with my wife this morning, and she says, well, who are the 11, and where were they, and did they get it at a party, and how did they get contact traced, and did they pick it up at a market? And none of that data is available. None of it, right? Basically, we, we know it's a lot. And very likely, six weeks from now, we'll have a better understanding of exactly how that 11 started and whether the 11, unfortunately, turns into 111 in two weeks. Uh, interoperability would have um, allowed us, I believe, a significant opportunity to get ahead of that kind of data, let alone the clinical improvement uh, and the fact, you know, uh, I was looking at a CDC study and now this had, unfortunately, 100, only 122,000 uh, deaths by COVID, uh, but uh, they, they had less than 5.8% of all patients that were being treated had access to prior medical records, right? Mm -hmm. That's an astounding, rightly small number um, for a disease that so progresses so rapidly, right? Um, so interoperability can really, I think, help us get ahead of many of those things. And Dr. Rizik, what would you add from kind of the analytics perspective? I, I agree with with everyone. It's it uh, it could have definitely given us a head start, especially I would focus on the predisposing illnesses and the comorbidities. Mm. Uh, I, I, as you think about that, we could have done a lot of this analysis real time. As mm. patients are getting sick, we could have looked into their medical records if there was interoperability and started to see the high risk population. If we're able to isolate, whether it's elderly, whether it's it's hypertension and all the other comorbidities, we could have acted much quicker to begin to isolate those. Even before we shut down the economy, sure. we could have began to isolate all high-risk patients, and and uh, especially in nursing homes, and we know that. And it, uh, the one last thing is, it, it wasn't any new true medicine. We also know that this is the same comorbidities and the same high-risk populations for flu and it, so it, it, we, we would have used our, our our medical capabilities but just isolated the high-risk patients much sooner than later yeah i think that's a great point uh let's shift gears a little and drew you can certainly add in if there's anything else but uh, you know i want to shift gears to kind of two perspectives that i think are worth discussing with interoperability one is what's the baseline that every organization should have and then second, like, what are the advanced people doing? So uh, yeah, I kind of like the idea of, okay, if I'm a healthcare CIO right now, what should I for sure be doing? And then, okay, if I want to be aspirational, what are the best people doing? Drew, you want to kind of chime in uh, on those two areas? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think what we've uh, found is that pandemics can be hard to plan for. Mm -hmm. um, 
And the key to responding turns out to be flexibility. And we've seen that across the board, you know, flexibility in terms of supply chains and staffing and uh, medication and supply allocations. Um, and that goes for interoperability as well. Um, there, there are new kinds of interoperability uh, that are required uh, to, uh, because of a pandemic, um, a lot of the patterns are already established, right? Because uh, reporting infectious diseases from healthcare settings like hospitals and laboratories to public health, where the figures can be aggregated, is a pattern that's already in place. But it's a pattern that was designed to accommodate the usual rate of infections, um, which uh, you know obviously goes through the roof uh, during a pandemic. So uh, you have to plan for scalability. You have to plan for flexibility. Um, and I think the, the truly advanced organizations are the ones who are taking responsibility and control of the interoperability function as a core competence of their business, rather than saying, oh, that's a feature of one of my vendor products. Um, so I, I think actually re-centralizing the role of interoperability is something that uh, the forward-looking organizations are, are doing right now. And do you think most provider organizations you know, I mean, certainly out of the kindness of their heart, they want to give it to public health, right? I mean, it's the right thing to do. And there's a lot of really ethical people that see the value and want to do it. Uh, you know, is that enough motivation, though, for all the organizations? Or do we need some other sort of stimulus there? Yeah, well, there, there's also laws. I mean, every jurisdiction has a law that says these 50 or so conditions have to be reported to public health. And the problem with that is then it becomes a compliance directive. And um, you know how much is an organization going to invest in compliance? Probably the minimum possible, uh, which is not what you want when you suddenly have to scale to 10 times or 100 times or 1,000 times the normal volume. You, you want more than the minimum infrastructure in place. Yeah. Dr. Hobson, it seemed like your eyes lit up on that. Yeah. <laughs> So as well as as the reporting up to CDC, the other kind of piece in the public, public health and clinical care are not very well integrated. And a lot of the tests are done in public health facilities. And one of the issues we've found is they're not always uniquely identified to the patient, which then makes it difficult. Um, so one client explained to us that the test itself was unique, which meant that test was uniquely handled. So then they could kind of come back, but they did not uniquely identify the patient. So without that, it's very difficult to do contact tracing. Without that, it's very difficult to bring that data into a health information exchange or a clinical, um, into the clinical world. So um, that, that was the kind of extra piece on top of it, sending the data up. It's also, it's not just CDC that should use it. You know, the uh, organizations may want to use that as well. States well, and, and it so does bring up the question of what's the role of the HIE, mm, mm. you know, which you obviously work a lot with, but, you know, that doesn't cover everything, you know, not every state has an HIE mm. and not, you know, not all HIEs are created equal. Uh, what's your thoughts there? Uh, you know, is that no. the right strategy? Is HIE to public health or should it be provider both to public ways. health? I think it's both ways. And certainly we can take data from um, providers and route it through the HIE to CDC. Um, just take a little bit of an issue. I mean, pretty much, every, I don't know what the exact number is, but there's an awful lot of HIEs in the United States now. So I think probably most people, most patients would be part of an HIE. Um, 
an HIE that has maximum amount of data and it's high quality and reliable and so on is surely a good tool. So one of our clients in New Jersey was able to kind of quickly map out where their cases were occurring and what was going on based off of the HIE data. So yeah, okay. I don't want to hog all of the conversation. No worries. Uh, <laughs> talk Matthew, for hours about other stuff, yeah. <laughs> Anything sure. you'd add, Matthew? Uh, you know, kind of that, what's the baseline and you know, what's the advance that you see with your organizations? So I think the thing I would add to the conversation is what we're finding is that the typical information that gets exchanged, the structured data, the CCD stuff is important, and we've got a lot big lift, right, to make that available uh, just as a baseline, and that really needs to be the baseline here. But what we're finding is the organizations that are looking past that initial to now treatment and ongoing monitor and support of patients with COVID need more than that, right? And they do need the imaging, they need the imaging reports, they need the pathology reports, things that typically don't flow through HIEs, right? And they do, in some cases, we're doing a wonderful project with Orion in Pennsylvania and Geisinger that image enables that. Uh, but we're finding the advanced organizations are looking at additional data types that have true clinical insight and data so that it's more than just identification, but it's understanding the complexity of history is what they're really focused on. So expansion of the types of data yeah. that are required beyond Definitely. the true minimum. Definitely. Yeah. So, I mean, I, that really is the core question, right, Dr. Rizik? And why we, you know, I'm glad you joined this, uh, this discussion is, you know, it's one thing to get the data there, it's another to actually use it. <laughs> so, right. you know, how much data is needed to get value and, you know, what are you seeing and, and what still needs to be done? Uh, you know, maybe that's, you know, another question as well is where do you th see changes happening in the short and long term to make sure we can make better use of the data, not just transferring it because we can transfer it? Yeah, I, I think everyone touched upon this and, 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 and I want to make sure that I add and not repeat, but not all data is created equal. Some yeah. have greater depth, some have greater quality. So the, 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 the value of the data or the, uh, the relevance of the data is important. That's number one, because, you know, garbage in is garbage out. If you don't have a full amount of data that really has gone through, uh, you know, sort of a strenuous process. The second thing is you just don't interoperate without a single patient identifier. That's a key. And yeah. and, and so yeah. if you bring in multiple HIEs and you bring in all these different data, you want to make sure that it finds its way to the patients, to that single patient identifier, or you you just have multiple views of of EMI. And and, and multi, you know, you'll have a hospital view of EMOD, you'll have a physician's view of EMOD, you'll have a chiropractor's view of EMOD, but you're not going to have a full view of it. And, and you might not even have all of the labs, all of the pharmacy. So there has to be some minimum amount that's required to be able to navigate through your database and find that single patient identifier. Uh, and I think one of the questions that you asked in the very beginning in terms of our response time and the logistics it was really interesting because if you kind of removed all the politics from everything, I do believe that if we reflect back that, you know, you have you have two pieces that you have to balance. Number one is the CDC wants all the data. And I think Chris brought that up. They want the data. They want to distribute the test. They want to do everything. But the massiveness of what happened with COVID-19, you couldn't have one organization do it. You had to partner between the private industry and the public industry. So you had to really come together. And I think that's a that was a key learning for all of us. And it, it, that is not just interoperability. That is 
government and 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 the private sector have to actually work together for the benefit of our patients they have to and i think the reason even when we got a hiccup in the very beginning because of just getting the tests out and getting everything out and wanting to control it which you want to do that but you could do it still in an unorganized way with the private industry uh, you know you bring go ahead dr hobson go ahead Couple of couple of further comments. Um, one is on exchanging the US um, CDI. So I was uh, very excited to see that ONC have set up a process where we can suggest further data elements, and I think that's a really strong potential. It might be slow, but it's a great idea. Um, the other is on the unique identifier, and yeah, absolutely. Um, personally, I believe it would be fantastic if everyone in the United States had a unique medical healthcare identifier. But just to reflect slightly or somewhat in the United Kingdom where everybody has an NHS number, we've recently done integrations with social services and some of those other um, services and we discovered that their unique identifier was terrible, unreliable. <laughs> so we had a great view of bringing in social services data with the medical <laughs> record, but they weren't using the NHS number. So the problems aren't <laughs> unique to the US. But as we expand to different data types, it makes that unique identifier even more important. Yeah. Well, ours is, not is accurate. Is not uh, is not wrong because we don't have. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we did a whole uh, virtual meetup similar to this. Uh, you can check it out at healthcareitdata.com. We'll put it in the notes as well. Uh, mm. You know, on it's not the cure all, but it would help a lot of things. We'll so uh, you know, definitely is interesting. But I think to your question, which it's interesting, you talked about the USCDI, mm. which is embedded in the 21st Century Cares mm -hmm. Act now. Uh, which you know I'm doing an investigation myself, and I'll, I'll admit that I'm early in understanding exactly what it's done. But it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, like I said, I'm, I'm exploring this, like the 21st Century Cares Act requires the USCDI uh, as a standard for data. And to Dr. Rizik's point, not all data is created equal. So my question is, is that enough data uh, or, or is it just a start? And we should be grateful that it's a start because that's how we get there. Uh, Drew, maybe you could, you know, you guys obviously do a lot with the 21st Century Cares Act. Uh, any thoughts there? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, uh, maybe I'll start by saying um, that the Cures Act was passed in at the end of 2016, uh, so it's almost four years old, and we're just starting to see. I mean, just in March, the the CMS and ONC rules became final. So it took took over three years to get that first piece of the of the uh, of the law to be really actionable. Uh, you know, and the and the deadlines are even um, you know a year beyond that. So it, it, it's going to be over four years between the time the law was passed and the time that that it has an impact on providers. Um, so so there there's some lag time. Uh, the second thing is uh, it's 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 a little bit of an oversimplification to say this because there's certainly quite a lot in that in that law, but. Um, the the ONC and CMS rules that mandate uh, the use of fire and the USCDI uh, are kind of the first uh, the first step. It's it's built laying out the infrastructure um, on which the other components of the Cures Act can be built. And if you want to see what the use cases are for this fire infrastructure and the USCDI, uh, you can look at the Cures Act and see that there's things in there like the cancer moonshot uh, use of real world evidence for uh, for FDA. Um, 
th things like that that can be uh, that can be built upon this infrastructure that we're rolling out. Uh, so it's it's a little bit of an overstatement to say that there was a vision behind uh, what was included in that bill, but um, but the fact is that that it does have some uh, some uh, method to the madness there. So by rolling out the infrastructure first, the fire APIs, uh, the USCDI, and then the the um, the process by which it can be extended, it really does unlock some of those use cases that are further down the road. So it's it's an influential law in healthcare uh, because it is going to de determine what some of our focus is going to be for probably the next 10 years. Uh, so so it is a good thing to research and to sort of uh, keep on your radar screen just so that you can see how uh, things are lining up in, in pursuit of it. Um, as far as the USCDI goes, I mean, I think it's important that we have a core set of data that that everyone agrees upon and can exchange uh, pretty pretty simply. Um, but you do get into problems because every piece of software that's out there is trying to solve a different piece of the healthcare puzzle, and the vendors are trying to solve it in their own way. And so they've built proprietary data models to represent the real world and the clinical. Uh, the clinical events behind uh, what what they're trying to think about, um, and so almost by necessity, everybody has a little bit different picture of the world, and that translates into different representations of it in the data. So there's never going to be a complete uh, a, a complete um, ability to interchange that data just because it's such different points of view. Um, but it does mean um, that we have that, that we need that that overlap that is the USCDI so that we can establish a, at least a common baseline so that we can we can have a conversation about it at all. Um, so that, that that's where I see um, that piece of it fitting in. And I, I think that might be the best description of why standards are so hard, uh, you know, between the different views, if you will. I like that, the, the viewpoint of, of the, the software or even the organization and how they enter the data. I guess my challenge looking at, you, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to knock the 24th Century Cares Act too much, right? I think it is a step forward. Fire's a step forward over HL7 V2 or V3 or, or whatever standards, you know. But, you know, I still go back and I'm like, isn't USCDI just a next generation CCDA as opposed to like a quantum leap forward in data? Is that is that being too critical? And, you know, Dr. Hobson already said there is a, a uh, they have created an opportunity to provide feedback to improve it, which I think is a good step forward. I looked at that timeline. It looks like at least June of next year if that changes, right? So there is the delay as we talked about. Is that unfair to say that it's too narrow, or is that just a feature of, hey, if we want to standardize, it has to be narrow? All of those, all of those forces are kind of in play. Um, in one sense, the USCDI is a very small extension of what's in a, required in a CCDA, so that should be good. Um, I have, I did read a study where they were really saying that even just to minimally manage a patient, you needed more like 50 data elements. Um, I did a project one time where we were trying to get a minimum data set for diabetes and we couldn't get it below 100. So I think uh, um, uh, Drew's point is, is valid, I think. In the end, you have to, you know, not too much, not too little, get a stake in the ground. Maybe the challenge is not so much that, but the other aspect which Drew covered, which is the, the space of this. You know, COVID-19 came out within a couple of months and next thing you've got a massive pandemic. Um, sure. If it takes us years to agree on one new data element, then um, 
it's not going to be fast enough. Yeah, and I'm sure you're sitting there, Matthew, thinking about imaging, right? I don't think that's included in the USCDI. Uh, it isn't, but uh, I mean, but, but beyond that, right, I think the key, and it will be, right, it must, because there's so many clinical <laughs> conditions that if you don't have that data, I mean, I know must, we're still using faxes, so I hope to be alive <laughs> for that, but I think the follow-up really thing to watch for is I think what uh, the group has mostly touched on is I believe that this is a you have to get to a bit of a data set for a stake in the ground, which I do, that has laid the technology foundation for improving on that minimum, which I think it does. Then the question is, are we going to have the regulatory oversight, the enforcement over the course of the next year or two and the motivation of the industry, which COVID has given us now, but may not be here long-term so that we don't spend the next 10 years talking about the next data set. Because there are significant forces in industry and significant care uh, because of countering objectives and goals of these organizations that resist interoperability. So we all agree it's the right thing, but it's not an accident that it's not here, right? When so, you know, John, I think about your question about imaging, right? Uh, we've been able to solve imaging transfer and exchange and ingestion, right, for a long, long time. Uh, but nevertheless, the great majority of imaging is still exchanged on CDs in the United States, right? Uh, that's a cultural issue. It's a technology issue right if yep. for us to solve and so i think that for me that's really the kind of important question is what's going to happen here over the course of the next year 18 months is the government going to let up or will there be enforcement with teeth right will there be enough motivation in the industry for the improvement and cost equality that interoperability provides that require that data set to be expanded and use cases to be expanded and i think time will tell yeah you know, on a pessimistic so day i'm incredibly Today, I reflect on the last 30 years in healthcare. Sure. Well, and I think that we have seen one thing. I, you know, this is a little bit of prediction on my part, uh, but it seems like, and I could be wrong. We'll see when it finally comes. But uh, it seems like to me, every EHR vendor is going to say, "Okay, you can have USCDI data for free." Uh, you know, rather than making interoperability a cost center or a, a profit center for them, it seems like to me. But, uh, you know, Dr. Rizik, do you want to chime in? That, you know, is the data from 21st Century Cares Act, does that enable the work you're doing in analytics or, or is it just not enough and you still have to work with every vendor and proprietary APIs, et cetera? Well, like many people on this call, we've been talking about interoperability until, you know, forever i mean we yep. have been really really it's it's been you know everything happens in healthcare at a glacial level uh it's a starting point and and i think a starting point is good because you have a lot of public and you have a lot of private organizations and there's competitive tension that also gets created you know among sharing data i mean let's yep. just be completely frank around the private industry there will be some of the competitive data in terms of you know wh whether I want to share or not. I could tell you that in in, in that you know in, in that 140 to 150 million lives that we have in single patient identifiers, we started out with about less than 300 data elements, and just less than 300. Mm -hmm. And right now we have over 6,100 data elements. So wow. it's just a journey. It's just like everybody said, it's a journey. It's just an evolution. We have to start somewhere. I think, I think the, the the way that ONC is looking at this in the 21st century is that they're saying 
let's start with getting everybody agreed upon interoperability. Let's not fight anymore. Mm-hmm. Let's let's just begin with that and begin with some standards. Okay, let's just at least get there. And then once we get there, we can continue to populate it. I, I have the same frustration that you have. I wish we could move faster, but we are in healthcare and uh, and it's going to take long. So I, I like small steps. It's better than no steps at all. And uh, I think it's really going to be up to a lot of the leaders like on this call to just continue to push and continue to give feedback to the ONC and try to accelerate the data elements as many as much as possible. Yeah, so uh, you know, ho- hopefully COVID helped melt that glacier a little bit and, and loosen it up. Uh, mm, I, I agree too. completely. Uh, the reason the the interoperability hasn't happened is the customers haven't asked for it. So Correct. it's going to take a lot of work. Um, but let, let's chip away at that iceberg a little more. Like uh, I want to hear what what's exciting that you're working on. So we'll go around the horn on this. You know, you each have, work with a lot of customers or even you know broader industry initiatives. What are the exciting things you see happening in healthcare interoperability? With either your customer or a broader industry, it could be related to the pandemic or not. Uh, you know, what what gets you excited that like, wow, this is happening, interoperability is happening in this situation or this industry initiative. Uh, maybe Drew, you could start. Yeah, um, and maybe I'll pick up where we left off on, on the previous question um, because I I say it a little differently in that I don't think interoperability is a problem we have to solve and then move on to the next problem. It's <laughs> It's, it's, it's sort of a property that comes along with all the other problems that we're solving. We're inventing new data elements and new patterns of interoperability faster than we can make standards about them and faster than we can hook them up. So um, I, I think uh, for sure um, the leading edge of technology is far ahead of the trailing edge of what the technology can say to one another. Um, but we've come so far uh, since, since, since we started complaining about lack of interoperability 20 years ago. Um, and, uh, and it's just because we're making so many advances. And for me, uh, this ties into to the question you asked, uh, that's what we're seeing a lot of our customers do exciting things around, is um, they're, they're centralizing control of the interoperability problem within their own organization. And they're saying, maybe we have these six vendors that um, aren't great at talking to one another, but if they can get the data in and out in any way, then we can um, you know, solve the problem for ourselves by using tools and techniques and best practices uh, to pull that data out of one system, reformat it and push it into another one and solve real business problems. And uh, you know, this comes into, a play, into play as a lot of uh, hospitals try to stand up uh, telemedicine solutions uh, for, for the use during pandemic times. Um, because those uh, those solutions are very uneven in terms of their ability to get data in and out, very uh, uneven in terms of uh, the data that they require. Um, and so uh, to, to implement a telemedicine solution rapidly is hard enough, but to, then to also hook it up to your EMR and your scheduling system and your billing system, um, you know, that's, that's something that's... Uh, that's a, it's a it's a whole second project that you have to do in parallel with just standing up the telehealth software, um, and it's a challenge that some of our customers are able to solve because they have the expertise and the tools in house to be able to be comfortable with with that diversity of of data um, richness and uh, inter interoperability capabilities among their vendors. Nice. And is that mostly the administrative data, like you said, <clears throat> scheduling and billing, or is it clinical or some of both? It depends on the situation. 
it, it depends on the capabilities of the individual vendors. Um, for sure, um, if, uh, if a provider is seeing a patient for the first time, it's awfully handy to have that patient's chart summary in front of, uh, in front of the provider. Um, that may be supported by the telehealth software, or you may have to have your EMR up in a separate window. Uh, but either way, you sort of want both systems to be referring to the same patient. If you're documenting the, the, the patient encounter, you want to make sure that you're doing it for the right patient. Um, and so having the, um, having the software in sync at the same time and also having it able to share information about the patient or the, the patient's past medical history uh, is super useful. And it's, uh, it's maybe not out-of-the-box functionality that you get on day one of standing up a, a brand new telehealth solution, but it sure is um, good good uh, functionality to have uh, if you want to make best use of it. Yeah, it, it, it's a topic for another day, but I'm doing a whole series of EHR telehealth, and mm. every EHR vendor has made the case that the reason they should use the telehealth, you know, their customers should use their telehealth solution is because of these deep integrations. So the battle's on, I guess. Uh, <laughs> it's a topic for another day. But. There's that competitive uh, yeah. situation yeah. again. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Anyway, it, it'll be interesting to see, but it's great that you're helping to solve that for a lot of people who don't want their EHR vendor to be the telehealth solution, which I think is going to be a really interesting discussion going forward, best of breed versus single vendor. I mean, we've been through this before with EHR, I think, but anyway, great example. Uh, Dr. Hobson, how about you and your customers? Um, a couple of things uh, stand out. Uh, early in the pandemic, the kind of request from the client was, just give us whatever you've got. <laughs> We've got you know, a crazy overload. People are dying. We don't know what's going on. Just give us whatever you've got. And so we were able to put together, I mean, there were things that we were already trying to promote, but before COVID, they just weren't that interesting. So we were able to put together, and so I think um, one of those pieces being the patient involvement in all of this. So the ability of the patient through some kind of patient portal or a, an app and an API and so on, the patients can report back some of their symptoms and some of their vital signs and then you know dashboards for providers to, to be able to manage large populations. And we were able to put that together you know, quickly and patients did what they were supposed to do. They entered their data three times a day or, or what have you. So, that was exciting because the, everybody kind of had an intense motivation, but including perhaps the patients to be part of the picture and to be able for the patient to be able to contribute some data as well. Um, subsequently, I think we've kind of, each client has done something new. Or there's a lot of unique ideas out there. Certainly making it rapid fire to report to CDC is popular certainly getting your results displayed in the patient portal so I don't have to call you that's been those have been very popular yeah. kind of things yeah yeah that's a great insight about the patient because mm. they mm. are motivated and they're motivated to do it virtually they're mm. not bringing that data into your office so you know we're no. all just <laughs> no, that's right and, and um, you know I, I've talked to so many vendors over whew, I mean we've been 15 years doing this uh, yeah how do you motivate the patient COVID mm -hmm. added that motivation great example Thanks. Uh, Matthew, how about you and your, your customers or other initiatives? Well, I think what we found, at least on the delivery system side during the pandemic, is um, really an increased uh, recognition that digital connections between facilities was really a requirement, not a nice to have. Mm. So it, for years, it would be, all right, well, I want to be connected, but only to my major referral centers because mm. I'm not interested in paying for the rest. 
And so even though we have a big broad network and you know facilities, uh, it'd be very typical for us to only have connected about 25% of a facility to its referral network. Not because we couldn't do it or didn't want to do it, but because the institution just viewed that as a higher bill on their utilization as opposed to recognizing the cost of not being interoperable. And that's changing. And you know, objectively, I see that in our customers because we've added more than 500 hospitals into our network for exactly this connectivity since March. So that's one piece. The second thing we're finding in hospitals in the administrative side is a recognition that CDs really are bad. And we had a phase (laughs) early on in the, and they're bad for the health of the institution. People are starting to recognize, well, I've got COVID patients in my tent and then they're handing me a CD. And now that's going, God only knows inside my institution. COVID carrier. And they're starting to recognize. Yep. And they're recognizing, wait a minute, that's maybe not the smart thing to do. Then the third thing we're finding, the really the folks that are looking ahead, as I mentioned, is the focus on how do I aggregate structured data with unstructured data so that I do have a more comprehensive set of information at my fingertips in order to make that work. I think the course of the next year or two, especially with the advances we have in APIs and some of the network building we're doing is going to be even more interesting uh, here. Um, what we did see a lot of in the beginning part of the year and last year that this year folks just haven't had the time and attention to focus on the cloud, which I think at some point that will pick up again. And I think actually has, a, in my opinion, a lot of opportunity for increased standardization and interoperability as more and more institutions put their data in the cloud and get it out of their proprietary data centers. Yeah, well, and hopefully 5G and Wi-Fi 6 and some of those other protocols will facilitate you know, the quick sharing of that data to the cloud as well. Uh, you know, all of those prices are dropping in a way. Uh, that's great. And, you know, is that a silver lining of COVID-19, the death of the uh, CD uh, X-ray image or imaging? Uh, that, that, would, that would be a good, uh, good outcome. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm optimistic, but again, uh, we still have faxes. <laughs> that's fair. Uh, well, Apple's doing their part by removing the CD-ROM. In fact, a lot of lop- laptops are, are getting rid of the CD-ROM and people don't even have a CD-ROM anymore. So. It's impossible. I mean, we have a growing consumer, direct-to-consumer patient portals kind of support business PHRs, um, and that's part of the issue is they don't have CDs and they have CD writers and haven't for years. And so we have to provide an ancillary service where individual patients can send us their CDs, so we upload them for them. Um, <laughs> it's amazing. It's it's man it's manning. Yeah, but, the things we do for interoperability. Great. Thanks, Matthew. Right. Uh, Dr. Rizek, you want to wrap it up and let us know what, what's exciting on your end? So outside of COVID-19, which really has encompassed all of our thinking, there's still a healthcare system that's taking care of chronic care and a lot of patients that really need a lot of help. Uh, cancer patients that need to get followed up, screening, uh, gaps in care. There's just... Uh, We've been so singularly focused on COVID-19, we forget all the other top five uh, sort of comorbidities that are causing just as much death, if not even more. Uh, heart failure, diabetes, all of this. And then if, you, if, you, if you've seen at least you know, the past uh, literature, it tells you that about 55% of healthcare adults are really getting their gaps of care actually closed. You know, they're not getting a lot of that. So for us, 
you know, we're, we're, we're trying to close that gaps in care. We're trying to get that longitudinal record so we could see, you know, who's at risk, who are the patients that have high risk, and what, what are they at risk for? Second, what's the quality in terms of, the, the, what's, what are the quality gaps that they're missing? How are, we, how are we closing those quality gaps? And then obviously, how do we pay for that? Because we talk a lot about pay for value, but it's impossible to pay for value unless you understand the risk component and the quality component, then you don't have value. So, uh, you know, since we have those three, we have to still continue in the healthcare front. On the COVID-19 front is, you know, we're looking back into the data. We, I think, I think we're getting close to about 1 million COVID positive patients in our database, approximately, which is, which is substantial. So we're, we're obviously digging deep into that and trying to figure out, you know, who are the patients that did well? Who are the patients that got certain drugs? You know, we're trying. You know, when you look at everything that we're hearing every every you know every day, and I'm reading a lot of information. When do you intervene with remdesivir? When does remdesivir work? Is it late in the disease? Are you intubated or not intubated? When do you uh, when do you give dexamethasone? Is it prior to the cytokine storm or after the cytokine storm? Because you don't want to do it prior because maybe it'll bring it on. And if you do it after, it might. So it, it is a lot of information that you have to actually decipher through and start to see. And, and I think this is going to help us a great deal in the future as we start to get into personalized medicine, which is what we're seeing right now evolving in front of our eyes. We're yeah. seeing how some medications work with certain uh, adults and, and certain comorbidities, and then another medication works with others. We're seeing, you know, when we when, when something as small as when this first started, all patients that had hypertension on ACE inhibitors, we said they're at greater risk because of the ACE2 receptor that the, that the virus is going gonna, is, is gonna to tag on to. Now, there was a study yesterday that said, hey, wait a minute, if you're on an ACE2 receptor, it's actually protective. Well, which one is it? Is it is it helpful? Is it not helpful? You know, you had a rush for people that were that wanted to potentially not take some medication because they saw it on the news. Uh, so it's just right now we're 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 digging deeper into the data into the COVID nineteen. We're trying to figure out whether this is something that we could learn from in the future. But when you start even want to target drug development with this rapid speed, like warp speed. How do you make sure that you include patients that you have good history? Like Matthew said, I think Matthew, you mentioned that there was uh, less than 5% of patients, they had the medical record? Yeah, 5.8. 5.8. And so that, that, that's, that's appalling, I mean, honestly. I mean, to have that multi-million lives that got, you know, got tested positive and you don't have the medical record, it just, that's not okay. So if we could begin to look at, make sure that when we are doing clinical studies in the future, which is something we don't do, that you're including the diabetics, the hypertensives, the patients that with immune compromise, that we're getting a good cross-section of all the patients. So we're working on both of those areas. Uh, it's very exciting and uh, for us, but we're, you know, we're still focused on the healthcare system because, you know, we still, we're very concerned about patients that did not get their treatments, patients that did not go for preventive care, patients that did not go for screening, 
patients that did not get their flu shots, which we know that there's a cross, you know, a uh, little bit of a cross protection with 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 COVID. So it's all of these things that we're still focused on to just make sure that we get to those patients. So did the data get screwed up because people avoided that care? Or, uh, you know, I, 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 like to me, it's not clear what impact that's going to have because we all know that a lot of care was skipped. Uh, does that mean that they're just going to get sicker and, you know, and, and, you know, they're past the point of no return for lack of a better, you know, term? Or, you know, does it skew the data or, or is it still just a huge opportunity? It's the $64 question. I mean, I, can, I think if you speak to some of the folks at Mount Sinai, I remember early on in the disease, we were, I was speaking to their chief medical officer and their president. I said, you know, did people stop having MIs? Did people stop having ulcers? But no, they were, but they, they were just at home. They just didn't go into the hospital setting. Very much. And so I think people just avoided care because of just the fear factor in the beginning or pushed certain non-emergent and urgent care later into into this so they said okay if i didn't have i i don't know we're still studying yeah. it but definitely there was a huge fear factor where people did not go in for certain uh for certain treatments yeah we saw so i think you have you have to accept if people don't get their preventive care and their checkups for their chronic disease and those things there will be a fallout <clears throat> um one small piece to that and try to bring it back to a kind of interoperability is if you're getting the data from a lot of different places then it's going to be a more reliable statement that this patient has a gap because the gap's an absence of something so if you've got the data from from across a region that's the health information exchange kind of value point excellent well i i appreciate you all sharing your insights i, I think we're at this really interesting stage of healthcare interoperability, where on the one side, as Matthew points out, we have 5.8% of records there with a COVID patient. And then on the other side, we're personalizing medicine to the individual patient based on the data. So it's one of the most exciting times and also one of the most frustrating times at the same time. So thanks for sharing some insights about your customers, about your perspectives. Uh, no doubt the 21st Century Cares Act, Cures Act uh, that's going to be a big impact and thank you all of you for joining and thanks everyone for watching this if you want to check out more great healthcare it content like this be sure to check it out at healthcareittoday.com thanks everyone thank you thank you Bye.